Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries and constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com. And this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gill at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Monica Smith, who is Professor of Anthropology and the Institute of Environmental Sustainability at UCLA. She's a historian who utilizes archaeological data to analyze the collective effects of routine activities through the study of food, ordinary goods, and architecture. Welcome, welcome back, Monica. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here once again and to have the opportunity to interact with you and your wonderful audience. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with about sort of a review paper. Uh, if I'm uh, reading it correctly, Monica, correct me if I'm wrong. So the fundamentals of the state, um, I found it fascinating. So you, you see here, although ubiquitous today, the state did not always exist. Archaeological and historical assessment of state beginnings and research on the characteristics of the state form in both past and present, help address how the state as a social, economic, and territorial construct became dominant. So, um, you know, as I'm reading through this, Monica, I was thinking, you know, sort of rewinding time back where we started off. Um, I would imagine we have had plans. Um, they were nomads. Uh, I'm I'm speculating here, and so it is not sort of the the modern state phenomenon, but there was a group of people who sort of shared work, maybe, um, and and it has some characteristics of state, right? Well, what what is your view on that? So many years before cities and states came into existence, what we could think of as our ancestral condition 6,000, 10,000, 100,000 years ago is small, often migratory groups. And so people would be born into, as you say, something like a clan where they would be living with maybe 20 or 30 people. There'd be very few strangers coming in, very few strangers being encountered on any kind of regular basis. And, and yet that is so far from our current experience 
experience, that it's very much worth thinking about where the state came from. If we think mm -hmm. about how we live now, we are interacting with strangers every day. Many of us are living in densely crowded cities, and we're living within nation states that have fervently defended borders. And it is important to think that we are the same biological creature that always lived in those small groups. So something has changed politically, mm. even if it has not changed in terms of individual human cognitive and social capacity. So my earlier work has been a lot about cities, which in some ways are much easier to understand because yeah. we live in cities today. If you go to any ancient city, any archeological site, it makes sense if you walk around a place like Rome or Pompeii, it seems very much like our current urban environment with neighborhoods and eating places and densely crowded housing and, and so on. But the state is much more difficult to try to understand mm -hmm. as a historical phenomenon because you can point to a city on the ground. It is very difficult to point to a state. A state is really a series of intangible institutions that become manifested in borders and boundaries and rulers and control. But it is also a philosophical concept that completely permeates everyday life. Mm. So did you think um, agriculture had some effect on so I'm thinking you know nomadic tribes sort of moving from place to place, small groups, as you say 30, 50, 100 people. Um, agriculture sort of put them um, localized in some ways. So what, what, was that the sort of the start of the, the state phenomenon? In many ways, yes, because once people become sedentary, in part due to the demands of agriculture, if you're a herder and you've got cattle, sheep, goats, camels, donkeys, what have you, uh, you can move around with those animals in the landscape. But if you are growing crops, you are really tethered to the land. And uh, if you know the work of Jared Diamond, he wrote a paper many years ago talking about agriculture as the worst mistake <laughs> in the history of the human race. Because to, to people nowadays, we might glibly say that agriculture makes surplus possible and it allows us to have a life where most of us are not farmers anymore. We depend on farmers who bring their products to us, grocery stores and, and so on. But agriculture did have a fundamental impact on mm. people's relationship to the land. And when you have land, you have to decide who has access to that land, who has usufruct rights, who has ownership rights, who has inheritance rights. And then that needs to be codified in some kind of way. So you get writing that then demonstrates who land belongs to. You get legal systems that support boundaries of a farm or boundaries of a village or boundaries of a state. Mm. So writing and agriculture are very important for creating the continuities that states represent. An individual lives and dies, a household grows, expands and disperses, but a collectivity like a community or a state goes on and on and on. And in order to make things 
achieve a sense of permanence, you have to have a form of record keeping. You have to have some kind of long-term administration. Yeah, so, so there's, a, there's a scale issue. There, there's an economic question. There are taxes, um, you know, those types of things that come into the picture uh, as states, as you say, sort of develop. Um, I have life sciences folks on the show. They say agriculture, as you say, is the worst. I mean, we've got all these metabolic diseases. Um, you know, we're spending four and a half trillion dollars. This is not in your research. Uh, half of it is goes to type 2 diabetes, hypertension. This all started uh, at the at the start of agriculture. And so agriculture gave us a lot of interesting <laughs> bad things. Uh, if you say state, well, I shouldn't put um, words in your mouth, but yeah, is state a good thing or is it um, not that good? I think it makes many things possible that would not otherwise be possible. And one of the reasons I wrote that paper was to say that it's very popular nowadays to bash the concept of government or the state. It's very popular to suggest that governmental intentions are always wrong, exploitative, and you know, of poor consequence for people who are living within states, that states are imposed upon people. Many, many bad things are associated with the state. But it's also the case that states leverage their collectivities in yeah. ways that individuals cannot do. We cannot build our own highway, our own railway station, our own airports. We cannot build our own schools. We cannot build our own libraries. We cannot fund our personal fire departments. Those are things that the state does. And the state does not always work perfectly. But the state also makes it possible for us to have expectations of regularity that would not otherwise exist. So for example, when we go driving someplace, we have a reasonable expectation that we will arrive unharmed at our destination. Yeah. Why? Because there are stoplights, because there are streets that get paved. We have a reasonable expectation that when we go home to cook dinner, we can turn on the faucet and clean water will be coming out mm. because there is a pipe and because there's some regulation and because there is landscape infrastructure that brings water into cities and so on. All of those are things that states do. So while it can be very fashionable to bash the concept <laughs> of the state, yeah. Uh, we we do that from the comfort of what the state has provided. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So as I was reading through a paper, I was thinking about, you know, the Chicago economist sort of course. I don't know the exact words. He said something like uh, companies or organizations exist to uh, minimize transaction costs. So you can very simplistically see a automobile manufacturer outsourcing transmission, outsourcing tires, engines, and so on. Um, and this is sort of a problem like that, right? So it's a, it's a group of people who say, you know, I, I, I don't want to be managing the borders of my county, so I'm going to put a state, quote unquote, in place, and I'm going to outsource a bunch of things to that because it's much more efficient that way rather than you know every household going out and trying to do those things right so is that the right way to think about it 
I think so. And I think that that is at a, at a moment of great tension, let's say, about the, the role of the state or the situation of condition of politics and so on. I think that it is worth being a little optimistic about what states can do because we know that stateless societies are really chaotic, yeah. uh, both in historical perspective and in the modern world, that the state may be having its flaws, but we cannot imagine a substitute. We know that if there is no state, there's chaos. And we know that a strong state can provide certain kinds of leveraged benefits for the largest number of people. So the state as a construct is at the very least completely inevitable. We mm. cannot imagine a stateless world. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Uh, obviously the downside is I would imagine, you know, a bad clan leader in, in the African savannah would have raised hell um, for that tribe. And we have a couple of tribes in contemporary uh, situations. Um, and if you get a bad person there, uh, all the infrastructure, all the ideas and technologies and um, you know social um, things that we put in place, it could all go away um, in this hierarchical structure, right? So state, states do have a sort of a downside, doesn't it? They do, but the fact that states are encoded over many generations means that there is always an infrastructure of people too. So yeah. here's where I think we really need to celebrate civil servants because yeah. they outlast any particular apex leader. And so the expertise that you have, the hundreds of thousands of people who engage with the support of everything from the postal service to the forest service, uh, those people are part of the workings of the state too. It's mm. not just the person at the very top who defines the state. Those people come and go, but the state as a long lived set of wealthy people and yeah. social apparatus is something that does go on. Yeah, I, I can see that. So do, do you think there's some, some sort of threshold uh, scale issue here? So I can imagine, you know, if I if I am the clan leader of 50 people and some of them are not loyal, I'm just going to get rid of them. Um, so now in a society with 300 million people or 1.4 billion people, it's not so easy <laughs> you know, to, to get rid of uh, those who are not quote unquote loyal. Uh, um, so is there a scale issue here that uh, you, you have to get to that scale before it becomes stable? Well, there is no island so small that it cannot be subdivided by warring parties. <laughs> so I'm not sure that scale matters that much because you can have harmony or disharmony in a very small group. You can mm. have harmony or disharmony in a very large group. And you know what is what is good governance? People have been asking this question ever since there's been <laughs> writing. You know, ancient Chinese scholars, ancient Japanese scholars, ancient African scholars, ancient 
Mediterranean, Greek, Roman, ancient Indian folks are all thinking about what what is good governance. Yeah. And so it, it has been a topic, political philosophy has been a topic of great interest to many civilizations, even civilizations that had never heard of one another. So any group of people continually comes up with the question, what is good governance? Because it is so important for such a large number of people. Yeah, so uh, you say here, utilizing the categories of politics, violence, literacy, and borders, this article examines how individuals and households are mutually implicated in negotiations of power and expressions of every everyday life that have been present uh, from before the inception of the state to the modern day. And so, so I can sort of see the historical context. We talked a bit about that. So, so we are here now. We have 200 countries, approximately. Uh, some of them, or a large number of them, I would say are democracies. It's a system that we implemented. Sometimes it fails, sometimes it sticks. Um, but there are countries, large countries, that are not democracies. Um, would, would you consider an autocracy a state, or is there something different about it? I would consider a state any territorially bounded political unit. Um, this would include not only the states that are recognized by the United Nations, but any group that claims territorial autonomy because they have a function of governance, they have a function of defining borders in a territory, they have a function of some level of interaction between an apex leader, hierarchy of some kind, taxation as you mentioned, uh, control over others through persuasion or violence. So all of these territorial groups could be considered states even if they are not recognized as nations. So perhaps one could make a distinction between what mm. is a state as a political unit and what is a nation, which is something that is interacting with other nations under an mm. identified rubric. An identified rubric or set of set of accepted principles. So th this has um, this has some implication in the United Nations. Uh, this is not in your research. I'm just thinking, so when when so if United Nations is sort of like a state in the sense that you have two hundred members, uh, approximately in there, and there is some player who is not playing uh, with established global rules, um, does the state quote unquote United Nations? They, they don't have any power actually, so they can't do anything about it. Uh, it's almost like witnessing. Uh, a train crash in slow motion. <laughs> um, so should we have bodies like United Nations that cannot really do anything about it? Um, wh wh what do you think about think about that? Yes, the United Nations is a distinctly 20th century phenomenon, and it was a response to other distinctly 20th century phenomena like you know, nuclear war, uh, which seemed to demand a greater than national response. Mm. So it was really the United Nations, again, another institution that people love to 
uh, poke at, but what, what a statement of optimism and care, even if it's not perfectly executed every time, the idea that nations have a forum for discussion, awareness, you know, think about UNESCO as a cultural heritage organization. Uh, think about UNDP for international development. None of these giant institutions are perfect, but mm. they are places where people earnestly try to improve the situation. Yeah, I agree with that. So you see here in the paper, the outcomes of the existence of the state range from collaborative platforms for integration to the realities of inequality and environmental degradation through future discounting and institutionalized power dynamics. So the state is also a player <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, isn't it? So, so if you if you think about the world as a system, and let's say we have 200 states, quote unquote, in the system, uh, is the existence of those 200 states a beneficial thing for the system? Or should humanity be thinking about a more inclusive <laughs> system? I don't, I'm just putting this out there for you to react. Yes. All right. So this is why I talk about individuals and households as the place where the state is truly embodied. And this is what you see all over the world when people have a national anthem or they have a national day, every country has a flag. And that materiality really makes people feel attached mm. to the state. You might not feel attached to the fact that there's a red light that keeps you from getting crashed into at the corner. You don't feel any attachment to that. But you know, if there is a, a flag flying from the post office, or there is a flag on the fire truck, or there is a flag in the parade of small children celebrating the national day, there is something very emotional about mm. that. And states are keen to amplify emotions and you have individuals who who wear the flag who use the flag who sing the national anthem if you watch any american sporting event the national anthem is played at the beginning well, so yeah. what is it about baseball or football that <laughs> should be a place where one's national sentiments are displayed it's absolutely something that is part of that emotional attachment to to the state yeah and that's why i don't think you can get rid of states mm. because even the most skeptical person feels something about that flag yeah that's that's really interesting so um let me ask you a loaded question so so we have eight billion biology and and um, uh, genetics tell us eight billion clones roaming around the earth. They have segmented them themselves into two hundred countries and six seven religions, and they're fighting. <laughs> Most of them are fighting. Um, so in an advanced society, we could potentially conceive of a singular state. 
I mean, there's clearly outsourcing and scale advantages here <laughs> uh, in terms of building roads and you know taking care of the environment and all of that. So I, I can see the the use utility of a state concept. But dividing the the earth into 200 little uh, piecemeal things, uh, I don't know if that is really optimal. Yes, except which of those 200 will be the first to let themselves be absorbed into another country? <laughs> yeah, so it's an implementation problem. Okay, understand. <laughs> so I'm going to go to another paper, the process of complex societies, dynamic models beyond state site, uh, site size hierarchies. We touched on it on our um, last conversation, but I want to get a little deeper into this. So. The site size hierarchy concept, you say, enables researchers to transform archaeological survey data into political classifications. Yet everything about the site size rubric is worth rethinking for the reliability of sur uh, surface survey data to the recognition of the sites of all sizes act autonomously within territorial configuration. So, um, so you're talking about sort of a dynamic um, construct, longitudinal you know, dynamic construct. So you start at time equal to zero and you look at a time equal to 10, what we get, and you are sort of looking at how, how, did, how did that happen, right? Exactly. So there are two ways that archaeologists get their data. And most of the time when you see something about archaeology in the media or the news, uh, we're digging something. And that's true, we do, we do dig. But digging is usually the last thing that archaeologists <laughs> do because it's very time consuming, it's quite expensive. And so what we try to do first is to get as much information as possible prior to excavation. And this involves what we call archaeological survey and reconnaissance, which is going out and measuring sites, finding them, uh, measuring them, and then comparing them with the initial thought being that the largest sites are the most important politically, economically, socially, mm. and so on. And that has been a truism in a kind of unquestioned truism in archaeology for, for quite a long time. And my point in that particular paper was to say that a simple site size hierarchy is not the best way of understanding how political units work in a landscape. Because think mm. of it this way. When you look at the state's capitals in the United States, for example, is it always the case that the largest city is the capital of a particular state? Not at all, right? Yeah. So in, in California, the capital is in Sacramento. And whereas if you asked anybody- Where is that? Middle, no, I'm just Exactly, <laughs> right. If you, if you go to anybody who knows anything about California and other parts of the world, they'll, they'll think that it must be Hollywood. Hollywood must be the capital of California. <laughs> um, or, or at least Los Angeles. And then they've also heard of San Francisco. So San Francisco must be the capital. And then you say, no, no, you see, it's, it's Sacramento. And Sacramento is still very important, but only for that political reason. And so having a simplistic equation between site size and importance is not a very good way of understanding the past, just mm -hmm. as it is not a very good way of understanding the present. So what I did in that paper was to say that simple size correlations 
rarely give us a true picture of either initial configurations of power in a landscape or long-term change. Yeah, so you say a new ways can visualize and analyze a process whereby complex societies, chiefdoms, and states emerge through the materialized energies of constituent parts, cities, towns, resource zones, fortifications, frontiers, and so on, that ebb and flow through connections of trade, warfare, alliances, and migration. So th this is a this is this is in some sense, uh, I think if it's in this paper or something else, Monica, it's in some sense some sort of a predictable physical process mm -hmm. in the sense that you have some initial conditions set. And then um, I could sort of, I mean, not precisely, but sort of predict how that system is going to evolve over time, right? In some sense. Yes, yes exactly. Because new inputs come in according to new technologies that then make people require things that they didn't require before. So if you think about technology, the development of bronze technology was really revolutionary. Before that, people had no use for tin and copper. Um, yeah. They put it together, they make bronze and bronze is shiny. It can be produced at scale and- no rust. It, it oxidizes. Um, it's, it's, it's good. It's good for some things like uh, bronze weaponry. It is not good for things like agricultural implements. It's too brittle. Mm. So then people start experimenting around with high temperature transformations and they discover in India, among other places, the very first to discover iron making. Iron making transformed the earth because you could make iron tools and implements at scale for relatively cheap. And so all of a sudden iron deposits became important. So people in their landscapes reprioritized. Yeah. So they added iron deposits to something that they now cared about that they previously didn't care about because now they could do something with that. So every single point specific phenomenon in a landscape, whether it's clay deposits or iron deposits or now uranium deposits or <laughs> the location of water. Lithium, it's not lithium. lithium. Exactly, exactly. So as we develop new technologies, we place new valuations on items that had previously been overlooked. Yeah, so, um... So, so could we? So we have this artificial intelligence thing going on, as you know, Monica. So, could we actually feed some of this data? I mean, you have collected a lot of data from many, many different cultures and countries. Could we feed this data to an AI machine and, you know, sort of uh, figure out what <laughs> where we're going to end up in a hundred years from now? So that would be possible, but AI is still the slave of the master question. <laughs> so we can ask all sorts of things, but we still have to set up the parameters by which some answer will be generated. So machine learning or artificial intelligence uh, is still subservient to the old fashioned kind. Humans still rule. I don't know how long, but um, for another couple of months at least. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I want to go into some of your recent 
um, research, Monica. So um, you say, so one, one of them is vegetarianism in the pandemic era, using digital media to assess the cultural politics of meat avoidance during COVID-19. I found this really interesting. Um, as I mentioned, I, I grew up in South India. Um, I grew up as a Catholic, so uh, I wasn't a vegetarian. Um, but uh, so COVID-19 sort of changed the psyche of people all around the world, it looks like, right? I mean, is that what you find it? Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit more about how this paper came into existence. So here we were in the middle of the pandemic and a lot of people who would be doing uh, various kinds of field research couldn't do that anymore. We were stuck. We were stuck. <laughs> and uh, this paper was co-authored by a UCLA graduate student, Stephen Ammerman, who was working with me on archaeological materials from India for his dissertation. And uh, he was able to get some funding support for the summer of 2020, that terrible summer when nobody could do anything. <laughs> and so he was we sitting were... at home, so it was time well spent. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so one of the things that was in that very rapid lead up to the beginning of, of COVID lockdowns and so on was the high transmission rate at places like meatpacking plants because people were working in close proximity under humid conditions. And those were some of the folks who had you know, very high rates of transmission and death. Hey, I, I remember um, Tyson. Tyson plant in Georgia, if I remember correctly, that we figured, yeah, there's sort of, yeah, yeah. And so it seemed like an ideal moment for people to use that as an argument against eating meat. Yeah. That if COVID-19 was disproportionately being spread in meatpacking plants, one very easy way to protect those people was just to stop eating meat. Mm. So what we did as a kind of ethnographic survey was we went to newspaper columns that were being you know, published worldwide uh, and they have those comment sections, right? Where you can look at comments that people make in response to articles and people have those free ranging comments and, and <laughs> you know yeah. you know sometimes comments are quite terrible many newspapers have subsequently stopped comment making <laughs> yes. because it ends up being a very unruly forum but these articles about meat eating and the meat packing plants gave us a perfect opportunity to look at what people were saying yeah we were expecting, and we looked at this globally. So I had control of French language. Uh, Stephen had control of Spanish. We looked in Indian newspapers. We looked in American newspapers. And we went through thousands and thousands and thousands of comments. This is where I suppose AI might have been useful. Yeah. But a human eye is still the most discerning filter through which qualitative information can be assessed. So we read through thousands and thousands of comments and we were expecting that people would make this connection and say, let's all be vegetarians. It will mm. help people. But that's not what happened. Mm. People in France talked about how there was nothing wrong with meat eating. It's just that we need to have more natural family farms and not these big abattoirs with the 
meatpacking on a large scale. Um, people in India who were meat eaters were blaming China for the outbreak of COVID and, you know, Chinese meat eating. It was just, it was absolutely fascinating because mm -hmm. one of the things that one would have thought would be a very easy way to forestall COVID ended up being subsumed into people's existing worldviews about mm -hmm. other countries, about meat, about the industrial food system. And so it was like this little window into when people change their minds. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, people don't change their minds about <laughs> their pre-existing feelings on anything about mm. politics about food about <laughs> anything people just what a global moment for people to have a worldwide reckoning during the pandemic we should have globally emerged from the pandemic mm. maybe as a single nation as you say or, <laughs> Why, why? Here's another question. Why was there not a new religious movement that came out of the pandemic? Everybody was suffering. The entire planet was suffering. Every single person was vulnerable. And yet, that new kind of potential religious thing hmm. also did not materialize. I, I tried, but nobody followed me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but you have a good cross-section of countries here, so Argentina, France, India, and the USA. And I didn't know the percentages uh, before I read your paper. So India is like 30% vegetarian. France is like 5%, Argentina 10%, USA probably 5 to 10%. So one interesting thing would be, did those percentages change post-COVID? Do, do, you, do you know? I do not know. That would be an, a great hypothesis to evaluate. Uh, this is the kind of thing, one of the things one hopes with research papers is that other people will take them up as a challenge uh, and as a, as a hypothesis to test. It would be great to take other countries and see if there was any change in the rate of vegetarianism. In, any case, the effect of COVID on meatpacking plants diminished, thankfully, um, yeah. because they set up new protocols for keeping right. people safe. Yeah. Right, right. So, so, the, so the, your conclusion, if I if I understand this correctly, Monica, is that uh, pre-existing beliefs are not easily changed, even by significant discontinuity in, in, in some sort of economic and social phenomenon, right? Yes, yes. Here was the moment where everything should have changed. Yeah. It, was, it was the most significant opportunity of disruption that could possibly be imagined. Right. And yet. Right. And yet, yeah. <laughs> Yet uh, we didn't see a lot of changes, a lot of sustain. I mean, there might have been some tactical changes when we don't really have minute data on it, but it's not sustainable in the sense that when COVID goes away, everybody sort of returns to their, you know, wherever they started from. Yes, even on a very personal level. So I, I was in India in uh, 
January and I, I came back and, you know, I noticed, I always sit next to the person on the airplane who is coughing into the air liberally. <laughs> and, you know, even those things that we, that people all did conscientiously have now also <laughs> fallen by the wayside. So even the, even the smallest motor habits have now reverted back to their original state. Original, yeah, original behavior. So, so discontinuities don't have any sustainable effect on human behavior. Um, so, so you have another paper here, relevance of the archaeology of infrastructure. So you say here, infrastructure represents the accretionally human modification of a landscape that persists based on its function. Its persistence is not only related to its practicality, but also to the belonging and materialization that such places represent in long-term social relationships. Yeah, so this is this is sort of philosophical, Monica. Um, it, it's out of my uh, my depth. Um, and so, yeah, so I mean, th this this is a very rich uh, archaeology of infrastructure. Um, and, and you're you're sort of tying what we observe archaeologically from an infrastructure perspective to social structures, right? Is it? Yes, because infrastructure is in some ways the opposite of future discounting. So future discounting is the circumstance in which the here and now is more important to address than some far off time period. And this is really important for economists, for example, who are trying to get people to save for retirement. Hmm. Um, or dentists who are trying to get people to use dental floss because <laughs> the amount that you are being asked to forego now in terms of time or money is something for an unknown future at an unknown output. And humans are not very good at that. Dating back to those nomad days <laughs> yes, yes. when you know people did not know if they would live until tomorrow. So the idea of saving for the future is very counterintuitive. By contrast, infrastructure is all about the future. Mm. Because anytime a society or a state builds something, we build it with the intent that it will be used for a long period of time by people we will never meet. Mm. So every highway is a statement of optimism about connectivity. Every pipeline that is buried in the ground is something that will last for a hundred years or more. Every bridge, every airport, every dam, everything that is done on that kind of scale, which really only a state can do, <laughs> is a statement about future use. Yeah. So philosophically, it's very interesting to think about humans, on the one hand, not having a very good ability to deal with the future, and on the other hand, constantly building things that are mm. meant to last. Yeah, so I'm a bit skeptical about this, um, Monica. So politicians will fund anything if they can get votes. And so I'm not exactly sure 
the infrastructure that we are building, I mean, you're not talking about the status quo, but generally, you know, going back, uh, is really reflecting our expectations of the future. It's just basically saying, you know, if I improve the railway line from Boston to New York, maybe I'll get a lot of lot more votes on the East, Eastern Corridor. Um, am I really thinking that, you know, that will be very useful for future generations? Maybe it's an incidental outcome <laughs> from which we nonetheless benefit. We will, we will, we benefit from it. So yeah, I'm, I'm as you can imagine, I'm very cynical about politicians, and uh, I'm not exactly sure if they're really thinking about the future. They're thinking about things in four-year cycles, typically, uh, and so all of our resource allocation, everything goes around that particular time horizon. Um, but do you, do we have data from the past, Monica? So. If you sort of rewind time back again, do we see a time where forward-thinking uh, clan leaders, politicians, um, actually thought about the future? Yes, because they built infrastructure. They also built dams. And there are some wonderful inscriptions uh, from places like India, but also China, Korea. There are wonderful inscriptions of rulers who build a dam and then inscribe it and say, you know, I built this to stop floods and so that there would be food for people to eat. Yeah, and, you know, they record the date, they record, it's some of their most monumental achievements yeah. to, to build productive infrastructure. And then don't forget all those civil servants who actually do all the work. So <laughs> once again, once again, the ruler comes and goes. <laughs> But the engineers, the architects, the the people who the construction for people who organize the labor and so on, they are they are there. So maybe the politician who funds the piece of infrastructure is looking for votes, but the engineers who make it yeah. care about longevity. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't pick up on the. Uh, I mean, you've done a lot of work on Egypt, which is sort of relevant to this conversation. So. Um, we see this big pyramids. Um, we know that uh, people lived and died making those things that apparently has no utility for humanity in some ways. Um, and so are those what are those people thinking? Um, the Egyptian rulers, or I don't know what, what to call them now. So here I'm going to borrow from the work of people like Mark Lehner and Richard Redding, who did research on the workers' village at the Pyramids of Giza. And the story that the archaeological remains tells us is that in those workers' villages, there were so many bakeries and there were so many mm. breweries and we find the archaeological remains of mm. quite a lot of meat that was available to people and so the story of the pyramids you know rather than being something in which people are enslaved or forced it actually looks like it was a big party mm -hmm. because 
especially I think for all the young guys up and down the Nile, you know, they were living in a small village. They hear that there's this great construction project and there's all the beer you can eat. There's all the bread you can, it can have, you know. All I'm the, there. I'm yeah, there I'm, for sure. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And, and that's where that kind of affect or emotion for the state also comes in hmm. because they go, they work very hard and then they come back to their village and they come back, they, they've changed, you know, they've, they've gone someplace, they, they helped build something. So even though the pyramid might have been, as you say, quite useless uh, construct as a, as a monument, it's something that provided the same sense of belonging that we get from standing up in the Coliseum or the forum before the football game and singing the national anthem. <laughs> it's it's a it's a memory of belonging. It's very powerful. Yeah. So it's it, I mean I didn't quite appreciate this. It's almost like a party, you know. So so from the villages down south, you just went to wherever the the pyramids are, and say you know I'm I'm sort of uh, signing up. Uh, I get my beer, I get my meat, I get, you know, all sorts of things. And I'm building something that I can step back and see that that it is something substantial for that time that I did that or I contributed to that. So there's a pride that comes with it um, potentially. But it's also, as you say, so I didn't quite do this. It's, it's also, it wasn't that... Um, you know, it's not slaves doing this. It's actually a little bit like a party that people went up and, and try to do it, right? Is that what you're finding? Yes, yes. And again, you know, this is this is work that's been done uh, very extensively by many people working in Egypt, um, looking at the workers' villages and and trying to understand this this problem of the state, essentially. You know, we have a state that looks very uniform. Um, is it merely a despotic exercise um, or is there more to it? You know, the state certainly has the capacity for violence. Uh, we see this in contemporary states and modern states, but the state is not only about violence. It is also about people who are voluntarily subscribing to the program that mm. the state is coming up with. That's fantastic. So um, so I want to touch on a few more people. We're running out of time, Monica. So do, do you have some flexibility for to go over a few minutes? Yes, yes. I, just as, as long as as long as the audience is uh, is with us, of course. Uh, I I find all these topics very fascinating. So so one of the papers you have here is five as an agentive force from forest to herd to forest again. So you say for at least um, the last half a billion years, fire has had a life of its own as a competitive interaction with fuel, air, and humidity. In its much more uh, recent engagement with humans, you say fire has become a transformative technology. Um, yeah, so fire was the first invention Maybe not. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Uh, but it has such a huge impact, right, on humanity uh, from half a billion years ago. Yes, and I think we forget about pyrotechnology and its impact. 
And this paper was part of an edited volume that was brought together with a number of colleagues that was about the power of nature. And it was a little bit of a poke in the eye to folks who were talking about the Anthropocene. And the Anthropocene is a concept that's really you know, very much used by archeologists and by others to suggest that humans have the most impact of any force on earth. And that is not actually true. <laughs> it, makes, it makes humans sound very special to have an Anthropocene. Um, but you know, the power of nature is still and will always be much greater than what humans control. We cannot predict earthquakes. We cannot predict tsunamis. We cannot predict volcanic eruptions. We cannot predict fire behavior, even with the best AI models, because there are so many complex inputs. And so the people in this volume looked at things like earthquakes and volcanoes and fires and uh, vegetation and animal behavior and all the things that humans cannot control. Mm. Uh, I, I have to disagree with you on this, uh, Monica. I know an ex-president who could predict fire uh, in California. I see. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we have some very special people could do it, but you're saying in general, it's it's not predictable. It's predictable with it has a kind of predictable unpredictability. So there's an archaeologist named Naomi Miller who's talked about predictable unpredictability. So you can know all the conditions, but it does not mean that you can 100% accurately identify exactly where fires, natural wildfires, uh, or human-caused you know, arson conflagrations will, will go in a landscape because there are so many inputs. There's topography, there's vegetation, there's humidity, there's wind, there's all these different kinds of things. And fire is also scalable mm. in a way that no other technology is scalable because mm. Fire can start, I mean, think about all of these awful wildfires that start because of a single spark. And yeah. then hundreds of thousands of acres burned. And we can't, we can't put them out. We try, we can fight fires, but the scale is truly catastrophic. Mm. So that's why I put this paper together, thinking about Fires. Fire has its own its own agency. It has a life of its own. It interacts with people on a basis in which there are unpredictabilities on both sides. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, this agency on its own, you say, um, and fire. I mean, fire has such a checkered history in many ways, in the sense that. We could not have been here without fire, uh, but now we find situations where, as you say, single spark scale up the the destruction very, very quickly. Maybe a cigarette burn or you know whatever, right? So, um, I think you know the expression was right when he said you have to uh, remove all the the garbage from the forest. I think uh, I'm not a fire expert, um, but. Uh, um, it is it is sort of problematic in that sense, right? So in spite of all, all of our technologies that we have garnered so far, 
we're still sort of behind what a file could do to you, <laughs> you know, because as you say, it's exponentially scalable from a very small spark. Yes, yes, and all the other powers of nature too. You asked about the rain that we've been having out in California recently. Like, what what is the hillside that is going to slide next? What is the <laughs> mudslide that's going to slide next? What is the piece of road that's going to erode next? You cannot predict. So you know that that rain of a certain intensity will have a probability of a certain effect, but pinpointing where on the landscape the event will actually occur is nearly impossible. And with climatic change, it, it's going to become even more impossible, right? Yes. So there is an additional factor into the equation that we have no idea about how fast that is scaling, actually. So yes, pretty problematic. So you have another paper here, uh, Monica. So the power of nature, sort of related archeology span and human environmental right. dynamics, you said the power of nature archaeologists address the force and impact of nature related to human knowledge, action, and volition. Case studies from around the world focusing on different levels of socio-political complexity, ranging from early agricultural societies to states and empires, address the ways in which nature retains upper hand in human agent environmental discourse, providing an opportunity for an insightful perspective on the current anthropological emphasis on how humans affect the environment. Yeah, so I mean, as an engineer, you know, I, I look at these systems as completely nonlinear. Uh, in a you know very stochastic nonlinear systems, predictions are not not possible. Actually, I mean, you, you could assign some probabilities, but it's not going to be that decision uh, specific. And so we're sitting here. I I understand the the North Atlantic um, sea uh, thing. Uh, I don't know what it was called. Uh, is sort of going to die as early as twenty twenty six. That's going to bring um, a um, uh, you know some sort of um, really a cold climates into into northern Europe. And as well as in, you know, to uh, to Eastern United States, so we are sitting here at the juncture of a fairly severe uh, environmental issue. Uh, but I don't know if the public really understands the, the implications of all of this, right? So, so did we learn from our history? I mean. We have gone through this. I mean, we have seen. I, I think we we thought we talked about this last time. We have seen cities where people just um, left left the city, you know, completely. There's no human being there, um, and we're going to see things like that. I think in the next hundred years. And that sense of human environmental dynamic will will go on. And um, I should I should mention that. I did a, a photo show last year that was in, in part inspired by walking around and looking at, at all the different ways that natural forces are 
are beyond our control and that they resurge. So you have urban animals and you have all those weeds that keep growing despite all of our attempts to, uh, to do weeding and gardening and things like that. And so the title of the exhibit was Nature Always Wins. So I want to finish up with um, landscape infrastructure and local infrastructure, skills of intervention in urban water management. Um, you say here because of the importance of water for the agricultural networks that sustain cities and for the daily lives of uh, urban dwellers, water management is a critical component of urban life at multiple scales. So people who live in the urban environments, actually, I would say, I don't know about this, but I would say they don't think about water. You know, it just comes out of the faucet. There's some infrastructure there. Uh, do I really need to worry about it? But then in the villages, um, especially in developing countries, they know water is very precious. <laughs> if without water, everything goes to death, basically, right? So we're in some sort of a situation where developed countries or highly concentrated populations in cities don't really have a good understanding of the resources that are consuming, right? Is that the way to think about it? Yes, and to, to end on a very serious note, this situation of water is one that cannot be replaced by any other substance. There are many things that humans can eat because we are omnivores, but there is no substitute for water. Substitute. And Many, many sociologists, geographers, hydrologists are telling us about the importance of water at the international level, because, of course, rivers often cross national boundaries. They're telling us about the potential for scarcity of fresh water, even in the most highly developed cities. And so that is the thing that I would wish for all of us to consider every day is that sanctity and scarcity of water and that it is the most precious commodity that the earth has to offer and should be safeguarded at all times. Yeah, on, on the other end, Monica, I mean, I haven't really thought about this. So if you have free energy, like fusion or something like that, then we can get two hydrogen atoms and oxygen together and create water, um, pure water. Uh, but that is, there could be technological solutions here, um, mm -hmm. but that is potentially 20, 30 years into the future. So we, so we have some sort of a tactical discontinuity here, right? So, I mean, if you look in developing countries, as you have seen, the situation is quite, uh, quite bad in many ways, right? So um, the question is, can we, can we have a, a, a bridge uh, next 30, 40 years into better technology where we are not really constrained by natural resources? Uh, I don't have an answer to this. Yeah. Uh, you're right that a technological solution, uh, in, you know, instead of merely thinking about it as something in the future, is something that should very much be applied to the present. And you know to to assist with challenges in many developing countries, um, you know, education is very much required, uh, healthcare is very much required, and water technology is very much required. So yeah. um, all of the folks who are engineers um, and you know people who are 
interested in technology um, who might be listening to this podcast that is an ultra rewarding goal ultra rewarding and and the highest uh, sort of impact on society so um yeah i agree excellent excellent monica thanks so much for spending time with me Thanks so much. This has been really great and uh, very nice to think holistically and optimistically about the future. Thank you. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say I'm that optimistic, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, I am optimistic.